Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and I'm pleased today to have as our guest, Andrew Krostowski. We're going to be talking about digital transformation and the future of work. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks, G. Mark. Great to be here. Well, hey, I'd like to introduce you and talk a little bit about, but first, let's put a quick uh, thank you to our sponsor, Risk 360. If you're tired of juggling SOC 2 and ISO 27001 compliance, you're not alone. The pain points for both are the same. Fragmented audits, endless evidence requests, and mounting costs. But there's a better way. Risk 360 offers a harmonized audit process that seamlessly combines both frameworks. No more duplicated requests or fragmented audits. Unifying frameworks for mergers and acquisitions, we've got you covered. Contact Risk 360 today to learn how to unify, streamline, and create efficiencies in your compliance experience. Andrew, thank you, and glad to have you on the show. Glad to be here. We've talked a little bit about in the past, you've got kind of a, a very impressive background, but more importantly, I think who you are is going to be of great interest to our audience, and this is going to be one of those can't-miss shows. So tell me a little bit about your background, please, some of the stuff that you've done that has made a difference. Sure. Well, I'll start by saying that I began life as a physicist. So my original work at Oregon State was in uh, physics and engineering. I spent almost 10 years in the Air Force doing command control, communications, intelligence work. And, and so I always thought of things as, as complex systems and how to derive uh, the solutions for that. So when I was in space division, I picked up a master's degree at USC, University of Southern California, in systems management. And always been thinking of of all business systems is complex activities. I've been able to apply that, frankly, in quality, operations, innovation, and ultimately in the digital transformation world. So it's been something that really has marked that. I just retired as the chairman and CEO of Realware, one of our leading wearable computer companies. It's designed to address and connect frontline workers around the world with information that they need to work more productively and safely. I'm also a certified director for National Association of Corporate Directors, where I serve on several advisory boards, and I'm a digital director's founding executive member and certified qualified technology expert. Now that's, yeah, that's awesome. And I'm looking at, you know, we'll talk a little bit more. We're going to want to talk about real work. I also want to talk about the concept of a certified director, but basically for a lot of people, I think in the cybersecurity realm, they look at, you know, I have a technical career. And they've all focused on the technology. Often they come up through the ranks, if you will. And then all of a sudden, when you get to the C-level, things change a little bit where you have to communicate differently. And now at the board level, it's an entirely new language yet again, isn't it? Absolutely is. In fact, it's one of the things that we talk about a lot at the digital directors. We're trying to help CISOs, other technology professionals in, in the digital space, be able to communicate in the language that matters to board members. If you think about board members' general mindset, they're there to oversee the business. They're not there to manage it. They're there to oversee it. They're looking at how it complies with regulations, how it complies with their strategy, the quality of management care that's being done. And of course, they're answerable to the shareholders and other stakeholders of the business. So today, we focus as directors not only just on, on value creation writ large for the shareholders, the larger concept of how do we work within communities, with our employees, the actual industries that we operate. So it's a stakeholder perspective. So when you start talking to a board, you need to think about 
how they think about risk and value levers and speak that language so they're paying attention and not getting tied up some of the details of management would be very critical to understand. And that's an excellent point that you brought up is that as communications is being part of our requirements, we've got to have different messages. Obviously, a message to the staff for whom we were accountable and the people who report to us, we need to be able to communicate what it is that needs to be done and understand what they're doing. To our peers, when we're looking at trying to help other people understand what do they need to do, like don't click on that or something more complex, such as uh, change the behaviors of your teams, that's another level of behavior. And then dealing with the executive team who are responsible for, if you will, executing the, uh, the strategy of the business, it's more of operational, but at the board level, it's strategic. And the language of strategy, at least from perspective of cybersecurity, would be risk. Is that a reasonable statement to say? I think it's very reasonable. Again, their object is to manage all the risks in the business. The digital risks, the cybersecurity risks. And, and by the way, whenever I'm talking about that, especially with respect to digital technologies, it's the risk and the opportunity, right? Because you're actually managing three different types of risks there. You're managing the opportunity risk of not engaging with digital transformation creates so much value. You've got the cybersecurity risk of, frankly, the bad actors that are out there trying to do something to your organization and, and take down your value system, whatever it might be, whether it's your personal identifying information, crown jewels of your IAP, whatever it might be. And then the third piece of that is really just the failure risk of these complex, interconnected, interdependent systems. These digital networks can, frankly, be taken down because of cascading errors within it. So those are the three levels of risk that always are our concern of the board. And frankly, when you're a technology professional talking, you tend to focus only on the first narrow one, which is this idea of bad actors, but it's really much broader than that. And that's a very good insight because I think the danger we make, as you said, you tend to get trapped in one way of thinking. And then from that perspective, that's not what the language they want to hear. I remember the late Alan Paller, who was a founder of SANS, had, was sitting at a pretty high level meeting where the number of senior executives and they had I think it was a CISO or the equivalent of a CISO give a briefing. And as that person left the room, the most senior person kind of leaned over to the person and Alan heard him says like, why is that person still on our staff? As if to say, I didn't understand a word that individual said and why are we paying them? So we want to ensure that it is understood that it is our obligation to learn to speak the other language, so to speak. And that's the reason for these podcasts and for having you as a guest here is to help our audience become better at their jobs, to be able to communicate effectively. Now, as we look at some of the imperatives, obviously communication is one of them, but uh, what about the concept of value creation? Why is that a key business concept and how does that work its way down into the CISO suite? Well, first of all, it's, it's critically important for every employee, whatever their role, from the frontline worker all the way to the CEO and the, and the management, and then ultimately the board, is what are the value levers of the particular business you're talking about? Because those are the ways in which you sustain yourself. If you don't have a real firm grasp on the value creation mechanism for your business, you're simply not going to be a secure operation for any kind of sustainable period of time. So I think that comes down to what kind of business are you running? Again, think of the boundary conditions from a physics point of view. It's like, what makes this system operate? And what can be perturbed by it? So, you know, when you think about the CISO's role today, think about all the values matter in these levers. So information for your customers, every ERP system, all of your customer resource management processes, right? You think about 
the IP that you store in your system, so many pieces of that value that are inside and have to be protected by uh, your digital systems. It's, it's probably the biggest area, but it's not the only area because you have to think about how as a CEO or as a board member would look, what other things interact. We take orders. Can we ship? Recently, there was a very large fruit company that was, was hit with a cyber attack. And, you know, they went back old school. Their contingency was, we got to ship the fruit. We got to ship the bananas before they, they rot. And so what did they do? They had a process in place to handwrite all of these things while they were down. They shipped all their stuff to stores and they sorted it out later, right? So understanding that for them, fruit sitting in a warehouse rotting is a huge problem for them. And they had a contingency built up to be able to keep that process moving despite a digital disruption. And so the concept of value creation is important because this is how you justify a line of business or a new initiative. If I say, hey, I want to compete for resources against some other proposal from some other executive, if I can demonstrate in creating more value for the organization than the competition, I'm more likely to be funded. Now, the challenge for CISOs and cybersecurity in general is often security is viewed, rightly or wrongly, as friction. And friction doesn't create value. So how do we turn that around a little bit when we're communicating with senior executives to help them understand that cybersecurity really does create value and it's more than just the preconceived notion of, oh, it's friction, it's slowing us down, it's adding costs, it's reducing our efficiency. I love this question, G. Mark. I think the, the idea of removing friction and creating value is absolutely fundamental to all well-run businesses. And so... One of the analogies, I'll go back to my early days in the automotive industry is in one of my first civilian roles working with Ford and GM and Chrysler and others. There, there was this thought process that, hey, when we bring in real significant documentation for regimented how we build cars, how we do these assemblies, there was a perception of pushback. That all of this was administrative. It's too much detail. It was too much discipline. And they would kind of look and say, well, look at Toyota. They have all this mixed model flow and they're very, you know, adaptive manufacturing. And the reality was it was actually the discipline of Toyota with respect to quality, documentation, procedure that was so well oiled into their system. It allowed them to have the operational flexibility to be flexible. And so you know, one of the key lessons that is completely alignable with cyber strategy is you've got to make sure everyone understands all of this cyber hygiene activity process, all of that aligns around to give you the flexibility to operate. It actually removes that friction and creates value. And frankly, you know, it's, it may be that little bit of sand in the gears when you're running day to day, when that car stops altogether and you're not able to do anything because your systems are down, that's when this idea of flexibility will come to the forefront and say, wow, I'm glad we had that in the background. So it does create value and it does give you back access to your value creation system. And that's very good insight. And, and you, you touched on a couple of concepts that I think we'd like to go into when you were mentioning Toyota. One of them was the concept of culture and the other is operational excellence. I don't know whether you want, you want individually or separately, but, but your choice, also important imperatives in our roles. No, no question about it. I think they're a high-performing organization is intri intrinsically linked to a high a culture of high performance. I really, I've never seen the inverse of that be true, right? For any sustained period of time. And so, you know, culture really begins with every employee being engaged and understanding the vision. There's a great book I just read that leadership is overrated. 
And that the concept there with the Navy SEALs is one of their first exercises is to kill the leaders. So if you're in a small team, they'll end up in, in the exercise. Okay, no, your leader's now been killed. You have to complete the mission. And now you have this discipline within this small unit cohesion that they all know what the mission is. They know what their capabilities are and they go off and execute anyway, right? They are able to, to adapt to those kinds of situations. It's rare in industry that we actually encourage people to have that same mentality of understanding what the objectives are, how to align around them and, you know, move forward with high engagement, understanding the mission and feeling positive about it. And ultimately that's what drives, you know, the feedback loop of a successful culture is when people understand what they're working for, that they're making a difference, and then they're able to then make decisions that allow them to, to execute towards that goal. And I think a lot of that culture and the decision-making comes down to trust. And as we develop a more mature relationship with our people, basically when you first start out and you got some, a new hire, Bobby the intern, as we nickname him, you trust that he's going to be an honest person, but he's going to make a lot of mistakes because he doesn't know what he's doing yet. He has no experience. And so we set controls, we set limits, a very tight reporting structure. And that works well until this person begins to understand and has demonstrated capabilities to execute, at which point it's more natural to sort of back up and go from a directing to a delegating and finally just, you know, you got it. Andrew, here's the job. Call me if you need help. Otherwise, it's kind of, you know, what I like to think is the best boss you have is someone who just says, here's what needs to be done, get her done and report to me if you need any requirements. Otherwise, I'll assume it's taken care of. And so as CISOs, we build that level of trust every day by our ability to ensure that the organization's critical resources are up and running, if you will, the value creation element of it. Uh, through a culture element as well, by being able to communicate effectively the imperative, the importance of cybersecurity and why that little bit of effort on everybody's things to say, this is why we're doing MFA, this is why we're doing that, really adds a lot of value. And then that can push us toward the uh, next term, which I had mentioned, which is operational excellence. A quick story, G. Mark, that kind of connects those two pieces on the culture and the operational excellence. It comes from my days in the aerospace management. And I was actually still wearing a blue suit at the time. And I was looking at a company that had about 85% of the world's market share and a very critical military component. And I was asked to go investigate this company, make sure they were you know, stable and doing well. And did they need to take some technology transfer risk away because of this company? Very well-run company. They had pioneers in an SBC application at the floor level. Uh, and I remember talking to a young 19-year-old uh, wave solder machine operator and uh, you know, the, the kind of walked by and said, hey, this is, you know, they're doing SBC here, blah, 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 next stop. And I kind of stayed back and I asked this guy, I said, well, what do you think of all this SBC stuff? Here? And he looked at me and just with this passionate voice said, I love it. I absolutely love it. I was like, whoa, okay. That's the first time I've heard, you know, someone here saying they love something like this. I said, why do you love it? He says, because before I used to be working away at my wave sounder machine and suddenly engineers would show up, push me out of the way, say I was making bad parts make adjustments on the machine, right? turn it back over and you walk away. And I always felt terrible about that. Now think if you're someone working in cybersecurity in the information technology department, if you've had that experience of something going wrong. And they said, but now with SPC, I watch my own data. I look and see when there's a trend happening and I call them to come fix my machine before I make a bad part. The, the onus, the energy has gone from being the victim of a system to being the owner of a system that helps collaboratively to make something happen. Think about trying to make an organization where there's lack of fear, 
Or those IT professionals working deep in the bowels and late at night, all those things, have that same sense of empowerment about monitoring a system and raising an issue and having no fear of having that you know, be their problem, but instead having people come to assist before there's a disruption or before there's a critical event. I think it's the testament of how management creates that lack of fear and trust, as you mentioned, G-Mark, that is a, a great step for um, culture in an organization. And that leads to operational excellence, which you can talk a little bit more about. Right. I, I think W. Edwards Deming would be very pleased with that type of an arrangement there, you know, with the total quality management. So as we talk about operational excellence, but also not just doing the job at hand, but how do we in, continue to improve? We get into growth strategies as well. And when we look at growth strategies, we often say, well, that's, that's the job of the CEO. That's the job of the marketing department. They're out or the new products department. But really, how does growth strategy align with cybersecurity? And what is it that we could do to both deliver operational excellence as well as contribute to a growth strategy? Yeah, great question, G-Mark. And when I think about those two elements together, the first thing on growth is that there, there are several aspects of that, right? There is, think of a system. Think of a system you're trying to now create, you know, long-term sustainable growth in this. You have the question whether or not you have you know, the right product market fit for your service or your product, do, are you building the right thing? Because otherwise, pushing becomes uh, very difficult. And do you then have the systems to scale with your success? There's a lot of stories of startups that have you know, failed because of their own successes, right? They're not able to handle the back end of all the demand. And so I think in, this, in the same guideline, when you start focusing on operational excellence, which is low variability, right? What is a characteristic of high Operational excellence business is processes with low variability, well documentation, adaptable, high communication, high trust environments. Those adjectives applied to an information system lead to this same idea. And again, if your growth strategy that is strategic relative to product sales or services depends on certain digital functions being available, if you're not able to scale easily to that, you're going you're gonna to inhibit growth. And I think that's one of the big reasons we saw the push to cloud, frankly, over the last decade was because this idea of scalability became so much easier in a cloud environment than it did with on-premise. That's a good point. And so cloud, the move to that actually did enable a lot of business growth strategies, even to provide the capability for search. Okay, Black Friday, we're going to sell a whole bunch of stuff, but we don't have to spin up all these extra servers for one day out of the year. Nah, cloud worry about it. Just expand contracts. It works really well, which is sort of leads us into the next thought I had, which is the concept of innovation. And sometimes we see in the cybersecurity world, a lot of changes, things change very rapidly. And as a result, we may be more sensitive to innovation than business leaders that are in areas that things don't change that much. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a chemistry textbook hasn't changed much in 150 years or a mathematics textbook, but the a computer book that's more than a couple of years old is probably obsolete by now. So how do we apply innovation as cybersecurity professionals to help the overall organization? That's, that's it's a great question. And when you think about innovation from that perspective, there's actually, I think, from the board level conversations, right? We think of innovation as a positive thing, as something we're trying to create in order to have this environment to get an advantage over competition, to create a moat or an edge around our you know, our business and the services that we're providing. Innovation can kind of have the opposite feeling in the technology areas where you're thinking, well, this is new risks are being introduced. So AI-driven 
systems here. Hey, it helps us with the way we could defend our systems, but absolutely enables greater attacking. And you think about now within this world of, of democratized chat GPT kinds of services, right? How much easier is it today to, to imitate a voice or a video to do fishing on, or spearfishing with uh, executives and things? So I think technology folks react quickly to innovations. Hey, the bad guys are innovating and therefore the onus is on us to, to kind of counter that. And business the Lord at the board levels think, hey, we've got to innovate because if we don't, somebody else will. And so you begin to, to feel that stretch. So I think you have to bring the idea of the positive. It goes back to those three things I talked about before. Opportunity risk, cybersecurity risk, and then complex systems risk. And in the world, you know, if you think of it as a Venn diagram, our IT professionals are really in that complex cybersecurity risk area where they're worried about bad actors and the complexity of their own digital systems but they worry a little bit less about the opportunity cost. And so if, if they can shift that discussion when they're bringing ideas forward to the board around the value levers that bring into that opportunity cost, you don't do this, you will miss this opportunity. Or if you don't implement these kinds of controls, you risk having a major disruption in your, in your operations, then you're speaking their life. And so that's excellent advice. And, and really what we want to be able to do is learn and then execute faster than the competition because a lot of it out there is a matter of yes we could be innovative but if everybody is exactly the same innovation rate all we've done is keep up we can go ahead and go for operational excellence but if everybody in our industry is excellent well then you're just keeping up and but if you can do a differentiation if you could then be able to demonstrate that as security professionals and business leaders. And that's in another important Venn diagram that I think is a CISO we have to recognize. And then add to that maybe a community because you can be really good at one end or both, but not be good at communication, but to be effective at our jobs, we need to do all of those. And, uh, and so then I think the intersection, but also we got to be the union of all that stuff helps, I think, in terms of helping understand, are we charted on the right course? And, you know, as we look to do things and the like, you had an article that you published recently that I really love the title. I want to mention it. It's called The Intention Deficit Disorder, or IDD. And you'd mention with no offense made to anybody who may be suffering from an ADHD or some other you know, medical condition. But tell me a little about your thoughts about what, what was your idea behind in, intention deficit disorder? And oh, by the way, maybe I resemble that remark because a lot of us might think sometimes we do. Yeah. No, it's uh, look, I, every year since my early twenties, I've sat down in the last uh, two weeks of the year. And I think back about my year's goals. Did I achieve? What did I achieve? What, how did I achieve it? What can I learn from? What were my major failures? What do I want to accomplish next year? Right? And so in this period of time, when you're, everyone's kind of focusing on what are my goals for the next year? What do I want to improve? What do I want to work on? What I found is that in my reflection, looking at how you know, a number of articles where people failed in executing this, right? The time to to go get your gym membership started is in February, not in January, right? Because the gym will be crowded for the first few weeks of January. Wait until February, and now people are back to their own habits. And I realized it was really intention, this idea that we have a major intention. We focus on what it is that we're concerned about, right? And if we have sufficient intention and attention on what we're doing, then we will make progress. Too often, I think in our society, in this fast-paced, social media kind of world, right? We're, we're constantly being distracted by their things. We miss out on having the firm intention to go get something done. And if we maintain that, 
narrower focus, fewer things, get those things done, then I think that we have a, a much greater chance of succeeding. And so uh, it was my way of trying to capture an insight I had from my own reflections on making sure that as I come 2023 in this particular case, that you know, my intentions were you know, very clear on what I wanted to accomplish and sharing with everyone else to challenge them to really ask themselves, is it a goal or is it true intention to get something to happen? And, and this is very good insight on that. I know that for a lot of us, we start out and they said, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions here, but also it's not just a matter of day-to-day -day execution. I mean, like most people, I've got my daily list here and I'm scratching things off as they get done, but we're talking a little bit more medium to long-term. As you mentioned, kind of doing an annual review, what went well in the past year, what could I be doing next year? Excellent idea. Even better if you could create a mastermind group where you have other people with whom you can be accountable and whether it's just something as simple as, okay, if we are going to join the gym or we're going to go out and run or we're going to go, whatever it is you happen to go learn something is that having some sort of a peer or social pressure might be the wrong word, but ultimately that's what it becomes down to is to say, hey, I'm going to keep doing it. And so you move from intention to action by being able to eventually internalize that. So I, I was on travel several weeks ago, I was over in Madrid. And one of the things I wanted to do is brush up on my Spanish, not to spend any time on me here, but uh, I found that little Duolingo program was kind of nice. And because so, my Spanish that I took was in ninth grade. So it's been a long time. Hola, que tal? And me amo Paco, but I don't think it is. But what I found though, is that it kind of encouraged you. Hey, every day you got a streak going. Hey, you can just do one more. Hey, there's a few hours left. You could finish in the top so many and you promote mm -hmm. to the next level and things such as that. And so this is just an app that has combined sort of my intention to say, hey, I want to gain better fluency at an important language, Spanish, with my day-to-day -day activities. And so now it's a sort of a thing where it's now internalized. And what we can do professionally is not only incorporate that in our career planning, but also in our counseling and our mentoring with the people that report to us. Because one of the problems that I see happen for managers is, and, and it's a leadership issue too, is that we've been around long enough. We got some of the gray hairs here that say, yeah, we, we figured this stuff out. But a lot of the people that are coming up in the next generation haven't had a chance to go through that yet. Maybe nobody's ever sat down with them and said, hey, here's how to do some longer term planning. Here's how to go ahead and create an accountability loop. And so there are ways that we can be better leaders for our people by sharing not just the technical expertise or the to-do list to make sure this gets done by the end of the day, the end of the week, but also help with the transformation for people to be able to better understand how to make their lives more effective and more meaningful. I think you hit on two really important things that I would unpack on that. One is this idea of accountability partnership, and one is on the gamification of systems. And both of these have, you know, relative importance to technical and cyber professionals. But just a quick story from my Air Force days. I did a lot of triathlons, and so I'd, I'd train. I ran in the morning. I swam at lunch. I biked 20, 25 miles after work, and I had a training partner. There were a lot of days when you get to that end of the day, get back to your apartment, you say, oh, man, I do not feel like you know, get on that bike for 20 miles, but you, you knew that your friend was waiting out there to meet with you and go. And so you get on the road and 10 miles into your ride, you'd lean over and say, you know, I really didn't want to go today, but I didn't want to let you down. And he looks at you and said, well, I didn't want to go today either, but I didn't want to let you down. So there's this 
idea of mutual accountability partnerships, really at a professional level, boss to employee to employee, whatever have value. That's a culture piece of performance. But the gamification thing is really important. We've all seen all of the apps and social media apps doing this as well, is trying to make sure people you know, feel that accountability. And so you can do that with cybersecurity tools. You can do it with cybersecurity training. You can do it with education. So there's all these little lessons about how human beings interact with each other. We care about those interactions. And so those are lessons that can be applied in a larger context. So I love those ideas of accountability and gamification relative to making a system change and a culture change. Good insight. Thank you very much on that one. So yeah, as I say, I like that article. There's a couple quotes that I had read that you had written that I, I'd like to share. And the first one was this, the time for a digital strategy is past. What is needed today is a comprehensive strategy for a world of digital opportunities and existential cyber risks. Now, why are we going to throw out, the, are we throwing out the baby with the bathwater by saying the time for digital strategy has passed? Let's unpack this a little bit. And let's get inside your thoughts. Yeah, you know, I feel it's a little bit like the comment that Obama made during one of the presidential debates where he says the 1980s is calling and they want their, their strategy back from in terms of security risk. And I think what I mean by that is that there was a time in the early days of Amazon and the early times of sort of those of us who remember what a dial-up tone sounded like, right, when you're connecting at 300 baud. That was a time where strategy meant something relative to this big thing that's happening, the internet, going to a browser, the World Wide Web. But my point is, the, the asteroid sort of hit already, and you know, just some dinosaurs don't know it yet. So every business, in my view, is already involved in a digital link in their value chain. It's, it's your hard crest to pick out any business that doesn't have a digital dependency on their value chain, unless you want to talk about your neighbor's lemonade stand you know, next door or something with a cash business that nobody cares. So, so digital strategy of thinking about, hey, how are we going to go digital? That's gone. I think that time is you're, you're looking in the rear view mirror while, you're, while your competition is way ahead. Today's world is all about this interconnected, interdependent, complex systems, right, that are working together. And that creates huge opportunities for how you can transform the way you deliver value to your customers in whatever way you deliver values. But it also means all of that complexity, all of those new tools and access points create huge cybersecurity risk for you, which can be huge penalties if it's a GDPR kind of penalty that you weren't aware of, or it creates you know, underreporting that we now know that the SEC is going to be leaning heavy into that come 2024. And so I, I think really it's not just strategy is no longer a reasonable conversation to have about general computer strategy. And, and now it really is about what are we going to do specifically about these huge transformations that are happening? I think today's boardrooms are talking about AI. A couple of months ago, they were talking about blockchain. Before that, they were so there's always these things that come in that need to be incorporated into a comprehensive strategy also creates significant risks that need to be managed. Which also suggests that comprehensive strategy is dynamic. It's not something you do once every 12 or 18 months, because that might be the life cycle of what we're looking at. You know, it's, you know, and, and a lot of shows, G Mark's Locks, and then you go and say, okay, fine. If we go back in time and we take a look at 18 months ago, who was talking about Chad GPT? And 18 months from now, Windows 10 is going to be officially obsolete. So uh, what we're doing now is we're shifting to a ongoing continuous strategy, so to speak allowing us to incorporate new ideas, new concepts, adapt to the environment 
as new forces come in and then address those risks as well. And to do so, we've got to stay on our toes and you can't just rely on, if you will, yesterday's training and yesterday's capability. So the other quote that you had, which was sharpen your ax, it sounds like, almost like Stephen Covey's seventh tenant, mm-hmm. you know, sharpen the saw, but tell me a little bit about your story behind sharpen the ax. Sure. And sharpen the ax comes from my experience in Oregon with my dad, who was a forester. And we would go out every year and collect several cords of firewood in the forest. So we'd have a stack of three or four cords of firewood that have to be split. And of course, my job as a, as a strapping young 13, 14 year old was to go do that work while dad watched football. And I'd be working away. And of course, you want to go on a date, you want to go to the movies, whatever it is that you're trying to do. So you'd be working as hard as you can and you'd be hitting. The longer you're working with that axe, the harder and harder it would be to split that wood. At a point where you're really struggling, the sliding door would open. My dad would glance out and say, stop, go sharpen the axe. And you didn't want to stop because you wanted to get done. But you do it and you stop and you sharpen the axe up. You go back to the pile and suddenly the wood's flying apart again and you're working away, but you get head down into it and, and pretty soon you're, it's getting harder and harder to split the wood and the window would open up again. It's like, son, go sharpen your axe. And so you stop. So the, the point is that really when we get into a task, it's so easy to get myopic about what we're doing that we lose context of what makes it easy to do this. In this case, you know, sharpening the axe makes would split apart much with unsolicited force. But there are a lot of applications in life where we just keep digging in and instead of asking ourselves, hey, how do I make this easier? And think about this from a technology perspective. How many you know, tools have two professionals created for us now that are equivalent of a sharp axe? So I think that's the thing that we kind of build into in terms of you know, doing things better and continuously focus on that, but not getting tied up with the fact that when the F level of effort gets harder, not to back off and think about a different way to do it. And I think to emphasize that point, it's in addition to not just the processes that we have, which we want to keep sharp. And, and obviously, you know, one analogy could be keep your software up to date, but also our own skill sets. And so investing in our own professional education, whether it's formal, whether we go off and get a university degree, whether we go and get a commercial certification or do what we're trying to do here, which is to provide a body of knowledge through a podcast or a uh, YouTube videos that people could go to and say, wow, I learned something useful. Uh, it's all a matter of staying engaged in that. I know that my partner here at CISO Tradecraft, he says he goes through, I don't know, something like 14 or 15 podcasts a week. I'm like, how do you find the time? And he says, well, plays them at 2X. And after a while, you listen to things at 2X. If the speaker is good diction and they don't have a lot of fillers, it works. And for his morning walk, he can knock out, well, 30 minute walk, you knock out an hour's worth of podcasts and all of a sudden it adds up. And what we find then is there's a cumulative benefit toward sharpening that ax. Although it might be dulling, so to speak, against the last bit of wood that you've chopped, the reality is that the habit of doing so becomes a sustainability element, much like that accountability where we go ahead and we're going to go do the run or we're going to go work out or do the ride, even if we didn't feel like it. Because once that's internalized, I think it's really made a big difference. And so that's where we want to get to, where it's nice if I have an accountability partner, but if I don't, I'm still going to do it anyway. And because you look at the way that some people happen, I mean, how do you get an accountability partner for Elon Musk? Who's going to keep up with it? And so as a result, some people have to be self-driven, not to say we could all be like Elon, but we could learn a little bit from his behavior. I, I would just say one more thing on that topic is what Mark Twain said more than a century ago is even more true today. He said, never let school get in the way of your education. And mm-hmm. today, 
there is so much more to learn. As you said, textbooks today in many subjects are obsolete before you get to them. So really, college today is more about learning how to learn and learning how to think in a reasonable way. It is about a specific mastery, a topic, because by the time you graduate that topic, you know, the world experts in that topic aren't teaching it, doing it somewhere. And so I think that idea of, you know, continuous education, leaning into Coursera, leaning into online tools, podcasts, other kinds of things where lifelong reading, that's, I'm a big fan of the Read to Lead podcast that, that focuses on, you know, leadership is about experiencing the failures and successes of others and not having to do it all yourself. So great point there. That's excellent. Now, we're, we're coming down to about the last 10 minutes of the show, and there's two things I wanted to cover. I'm going to jump to the what I think is the more important of the two, and if we have time, we'll come back uh, to the first. And let's talk about the Digital Directors Network. The Digital Directors Network, well, you've been involved in that, and uh, well, just tell me a little bit more about it. It's kind of fascinated by it. The more I read about it, the more I'm saying, I want, pay, I want a piece of this. So, so the Digital Directors Network started in about 2017. I got involved very early on as an idea at the National Association of Corporate Directors in 2018, where I met Bob Zukas, the CEO and founder. And I became a, a founding executive member of this organization whose focus is trying to bring our digital savvy and cybersecurity experience into the boardroom, because we feel that is a unique and different kind of risk management than just all the other risks that people manage all the time. And so... There's this idea within boards, and believe it or not, 25 years ago before Sarbanes-Oxley, it wasn't, there wasn't a need for a qualified financial expert to be on a board's audit committee. So think about this, right? You're, hey, we can manage, we know how to look at a financial state. And then, of course, then the financial crisis hit. And suddenly, government says, no, you need to have a qualified financial executive on your board and in your audit committee in order to understand the complexities of all these things that are happening with the financial malfeasance that went with Enron and WorldCom and all of that kind of stuff. Flash forward to today, you've got board members out there who will say, we manage all kinds of risks. We don't need to have you know, a, a, a qualified technology expert in our board. You know, we just need to know, be able to ask better questions. And in a summary, digital directors is about, well, it's not just about asking better questions. It's about actually understanding the answers and being go, able to go down to the next level. So we deal with the problem from both sides helping CISOs and other uh, cyber executive professionals speak the language of boards and be ready for board governance opportunities that we think will be happening, much like you saw the initiative for women getting into the boardroom and other diversity of thought and equity happening in the boardroom. And the other side is board education, helping them understand the dynamics of these risks, opportunities, and the, the nature of what they need to, to oversee. Do you think that the SEC missed something when their recent guidance, which came out effective in September with regard to cybersecurity and boards, where they struck that provision that uh, boards had to document what their cybersecurity expertise was among their membership? Uh, or do you think it's just something that they didn't want to throw too much too soon and that's going to come later? Or do you think the writing is on the wall and that a prudent board will have some cybersecurity expertise, whether or not they're told to do so. What's your read on well, that? In the end, there's, I think that the die has been cast and we just haven't gotten there. I don't think the SEC went far enough without specifying and have that kind of, of technical governance on your boards, but I think it's going to get there in the future. I think there's a lot of resistance from other organizations and existing boards who didn't want to be pressured in this area, but the, this the nature of the challenge that we talked about, right? The, the cybersecurity risk, conflict system risk, opportunity risk are going to force ultimately that to happen. 
And we'll look back and I don't know if it'll be five years or 10 years, people have that same perception that you know, if today you said you don't need a financial expert on your board, well, they'd say, well, of course, it's required by legislation today. But of course, they say that's a bad idea. Of course you do. I think five, 10 years from now, the same feeling will be, of course, in a world that is so digitally connected and interconnected, you need to have this kind of expertise at a deeper level on your board of directors. And I think that is inevitable. Good insights. Now, one of the things that I know the Digital Directors Network have is some courseware. And one of them is a boardroom certified qualified technology expert or a QTE. Could you tell me a little bit about the concept of what is a QTE? Is that a board person getting smart about cyber? Is it a cyber person getting smart about board? And then how would somebody investigate that a little bit further? Well, first of all, I encourage everyone to go to the Digital Directors Network and find out more about it. There are classes for the Certified Quality Technology Expert 501 virtually every month. And so they can go there, sign up. It's delivered both in online modes and it's also delivered in person. So depending on your schedule, you can do that. We also have an annual conference. And the next one is Domino 24 happening May 15th and 16th in Chicago or at the University of Chicago. The best voices on cybersecurity and governance come together. And we really have conversations about what is, what's happening in this space between regulation, between best practices, between emerging threats and, and opportunities. So I'd encourage your listeners to take a look at what's going on at Digital Directors. And that QTE class is mostly focused on cyber professionals, CISOs and CAOs who want to be in the boardroom. But we've had a lot of board members who have come in and said, I want to understand what my part of it is. So we've worked you know, both sides of that equation. Interesting. And I, that does sound worthwhile. So that's kind of on my list. You talk about the intentions and things yeah. like that. Uh, I put that kind of on my list of things to look into for next year. So we're getting close to the end of the show. So let's do a little bit of wrap up. So we, we talked a little bit about imperatives, the idea of value creation, being able to help the organization generate more than you've put into it, if you will, creating value, the importance of culture and why that matters and our ability, not only with our relationships with the people to whom we report and work with, but also the teams that report to us. Operational excellence, the ability to deliver above and beyond as a standard of you know, mediocrity so that every time something is done from security or within the organization, it's done correctly and it's done so well that people are like, wow, that's mm -hmm. great. We looked at growth strategies, the ability to be able to support the organization as they go ahead and get into new lines of business or expanding what they're doing and security being an enabler for that rather than, if you will, sand in the gears. And then innovation, why we're constantly dealing with innovation in cybersecurity because of the rapid nature of change and also therefore why innovation would be important in dealing with other elements of the organization from a cybersecurity perspective. We mentioned your intention deficit disorder article, which I loved again, the title of that. And again, I'll repeat your quote, the time for a digital strategy is past. What is needed today is a comprehensive strategy for a world of digital opportunities and existential cyber risks. And, and we finished up with the idea of sharpening your ax and then the opportunities that are presented to cybersecurity professionals through an organization called the Digital Directors Network. It's the website digitaldirectors.network using that. And then you can find information there, including, as we said, that QTE course. Is there anything else that I didn't think of before we wrap up the show? No, look, thanks very much, Shimur, for, for allowing me to talk on a topic I'm passionate about. The world is changing. Obviously, we are moving forward into a world where everyone needs to be connected. And it's one of the reasons why at Real, where we focused on the frontline connected worker, because there are over 2 billion people out there who are 
today working with their hands on the front lines, whether they're a surgeon or a, a mechanic that need access to the same information systems that we've been talking about for this last 45 minutes of, of knowledge workers. And I think that the world is going to be completely comprehensively connected here with these digital opportunities. And for your listeners, the folks who are uh, securing that digital uh, framework, so important for the value lovers that we're going to have available to us in the years to come. Well, thank you very much. For our audience, you've been listening with Andrew Krostowski, and I'm your host, G. Mark Hardy. We hope that you've enjoyed this program. If you like, please follow us on LinkedIn. If you're not doing so, we do more than just podcasts. We have what we hope is a high signal to low noise ratio, steady stream of information to help you with your career. And look for us on YouTube if you're not doing so already. And now I understand why I always want people to follow you because it helps us get rid of the ads we don't want to and we get better control. So you help us out and you help yourself out. It doesn't cost you anything to do so. And uh, don't forget to share with everybody else where you get your good ideas because hopefully it's here. We're always willing to listen to you. Give us a note at CISOTradeCraft.com or connect to us on LinkedIn. Uh, otherwise, hopefully you have a great and a safe week. And until next time, stay safe out there.